Chapter 12 of Historical Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in February 2020. Historical Mysteries by Andrew Lang. Chapter 12 Saint Germain, the Deathless. Among the best brief masterpieces of fiction are Lytton's The Haunters and the Haunted and Thackeray's Notch on the Axe in Roundabout Papers. Both deal with a mysterious being who passes through the ages, rich, powerful, always behind the scenes, coming no man knows whence, and dying, or pretending to die, obscurely, you never find authentic evidence of his disease in other later times at other courts such an one reappears and runs the same course of luxury marvel and hidden potency lytton returned to and elaborated his idea in the margrave of a strange story who has no soul and prolongs his physical and intellectual life by means of an elixir margrave is not bad but he is inferior to the hero less elaborately designed of the haunters and the haunted thackeray's tale is written in a tone of mock mysticism but he confesses that he likes his own story in which the strange hero through all his many lives or reappearances and through all the countless loves on which he fatuously plumes himself retains a slight german jewish accent it appears to me that the historic original of these romantic characters is no other than the mysterious comte de saint-germain not of course the contemporary and normal french soldier and minister of seventeen seven to seventeen seventy eight who bore the same name i have found the name with dim allusions in the unpublished letters and manuscripts of prince charles edward stuart and have not always been certain whether the reference was to the man of action or to the man of mystery on the secret of the latter the deathless one i have no new light to throw and only speak of him for a single reason aristotle assures us in his poetics that the best-known myths dramatized on the athenian stage were known to very few of the athenian audience it is not impossible that the story of saint germain though it seems as familiar as the myth of oedipus or thyestes may after all not be vividly present to the memory of every reader the omniscient larousse of the dictionnaire universel certainly did not know one very accessible fact about saint germain nor have i seen it mentioned in other versions of his legend we read in larousse saint germain is not heard of in france before 1750 when he established himself in paris no adventure had called attention to his existence it was only known that he had moved about europe lived in italy holland and in england and had borne the name of marquis de montferrat and of comte de bellamy which he used at venice lassell rexel again in remarkable adventures eighteen sixty three says whatever truth there may be in saint germain's travels in england and the east indies 
it is indubitable that for from seventeen forty five to seventeen fifty five he was a man of high position in vienna while in paris he does not appear according to raxall till seventeen fifty seven having been brought from germany by the marechal de belle isle whose old boots says marcelester the spy prince charles freely damned because they were always stuffed with projects now we hear of saint-germain by that name as resident not in vienna but in london at the very moment when prince charles evading cumberland who lay with his army at stone in staffordshire marched to derby horace walpole writes to man in florence december nine seventeen forty five we begin to take up people the other day they seized an odd man who goes by the name of count saint-germain he has been here these two years and will not tell who he is or whence but professes that he does not go by his right name he sings plays on the violin wonderfully composes is mad and not very sensible he is called an italian a spaniard a pole a somebody that married a great fortune in mexico and ran away with her jewels to constantinople a priest a fiddler a vast nobleman the prince of wales has had unsatiated curiosity about him but in vain however nothing has been made out against him he is released and what convinces me he is not a gentleman stays here and talks of his being taken up for a spy here is our earliest authentic note on saint germain a note omitted by his french students he was in london from seventeen forty three to seventeen forty five under a name not his own but that which he later bore at the court of france from the allusion to his jewels those of a deserted mexican bride it appears that he was already as rich in these treasures as he was afterwards when his french acquaintances marvelled at them as to his being mad walpole may refer to saint germain's way of talking as if he had lived in remote ages and known famous people of the past having caught this daylight glimpse of saint germain in walpole having learned that in december seventeen forty five he was arrested and examined as a possible jacobite agent we naturally expect to find contemporary official documents about his examination by the government scores of such records exist containing the questions put to and the answers given by suspected persons but we vainly hunt through the newcastle manuscript and the state papers domestic in the record office for a trace of the examination of saint germain i am not aware that he has anywhere left his trail in official documents he lives in more or less legendary memoirs alone at what precise date saint germain became an intimate of louis the fifteenth the duc de choiseul madame de pompadour and the Maréchal de Belle-Isle, one cannot ascertain. The writers of memoirs are the vaguest of mortals about dates. Only one discerns that Saint-Germain was much about the French court and high in the favour of the king, having rooms at Chambord during the Seven Years' War and just before the time of the peace negotiations of 1762 to 1763 the art of compiling false or forged memories of that period was widely practised but the memoirs of madame du Hossé, 
who speaks of Saint-Germain, are authentic. She was the widow of a poor man of noble family, and was one of two femmes de chambre of Madame de Pompadour. Her manuscript was written, she explains, by aid of a brief diary which she kept during her term of service. One day, Monsieur Senac de Melhan found Madame de Pompadour's brother, Monsieur de Marigny, about to burn a packet of papers. It is the journal, he said, of a femme de chambre of my sister, a good, kind woman. The Melhan asked for the manuscript, which he later gave to Mr. Crawford, one of the kill-winning family in Ayrshire, who later helped in the escape of Louis the Sixteenth and Marie-Antoinette to Varennes, where they were captured. With the journal of Madame du Hossé were several letters to Marigny on points of historical anecdote. Crawford published a manuscript of Madame du Hossé, which he was given by the Melhon, and the memoirs are thus from an authentic source. The author says that Louis XV was always kind to her, but spoke little to her, whereas Madame de Pompadour remarked, The king and I trust you so much that we treat you like a cat or a dog and talk freely before you. As to Saint-Germain, Madame du Hossé writes, A man who was as amazing as a witch came often to see Madame de Pompadour. This was the Comte de Saint-Germain, who wished to make people believe that he had lived for several centuries. One day Madame said to him, while at her toilet, What sort of man was Francis I, a king whom I could have loved? A good sort of fellow, said Saint-Germain, too fiery. I could have given him a useful piece of advice, but he would not have listened. He then described, in very general terms, the beauty of Mary Stuart and La Reine Margot. You seem to have seen them all, said Madame de Pompadour, laughing. Sometimes, said Saint-Germain, I amuse myself not by making people believe, but by letting them believe that I have lived from time immemorial. But you do not tell us your age, and you give yourself out as very old. Madame de Gergy, who was wife of the French ambassador at Venice fifty years ago, I think, says that she knew you there, and that you are not changed in the least. It is true, madame, that I knew Madame de Cherchy long ago. But according to her story you must now be over a century old. It may be so, but I admit that even more possibly the respected lady is in her dotage. At this time Saint-Germain, says Madame du Hossé, looked about fifty, was neither thin nor stout, seemed clever, and dressed simply, as a rule, but in good taste. Say that the date was 1760. Saint-Germain looked fifty, but he had looked the same age, according to Madame de Gergy, at Venice, fifty years earlier, in 1710. We see how pleasantly he left Madame de Pompadour in doubt on that point. He pretended to have the secret of removing flaws from diamonds. The king showed him a stone valued at six thousand francs. Without a flaw it would have been worth ten thousand. Saint-Germain said that he could remove the flaw in a month, and in a month he brought back the diamond, flawless. The king sent it, without any comment, to his jeweller, who gave nine thousand six hundred francs for the stone, but the king returned the money and kept the gem as a curiosity. 
Probably it was not the original stone, but another cut in the same fashion, Saint-Germain sacrificing three thousand or five thousand francs to his practical joke. He also said that he could increase the size of pearls, which he could have proved very easily, in the same manner. He would not oblige Madame de Pompadour by giving the king an elixir of life. I should be mad if I gave the king a drug. There seems to be a reference to this desire of Madame de Pompadour in an unlikely place, a letter of Pickle the Spy to Mr. Vaughan, 1754. This conversation Madame de Hausset wrote down on the day of its occurrence. Both Louis XV and Madame de Pompadour treated Saint-Germain as a person of consequence. He is a quack, for he says he has an elixir, said Dr. Quenet with medical scepticism. Moreover, our master, the king, is obstinate. He sometimes speaks of Saint-Germain as a person of illustrious birth. The age was sceptical, unscientific, and, by reaction, credulous. The philosophe, Hume, Voltaire, and others, were exposing, like an ingenious American gentleman, the mistakes of Moses. The Earl Marichal told Hume that life had been chemically produced in a laboratory, so what becomes of creation? Prince Charles, hidden in a convent, was being tortured by Mademoiselle Lucie in the sensational philosophy of Locke, nothing in the intellect which does not come through the senses, a queer theme for a man of the sort to study. But, thirty years earlier, the regent d'Orléans had made crystal gazing fashionable, and stories of ghosts and second sight in the highest circles were popular. Mesmer had not yet appeared to give a fresh start to the old savage practice of hypnotism. Cagliostro was not yet on the scene with his freemasonry on the ancient Egyptian school. But people were already in extremes of doubt and of belief. There might be something in the elixir of life and in the philosopher's stone. It might be possible to make precious stones chemically, and Saint-Germain, who seemed to be over a century old at least, might have all these secrets. Whence came his wealth in precious stones, people asked, unless from some mysterious knowledge, or some equally mysterious and illustrious birth. He showed Madame de Pompadour a little box full of rubies, topazes, and diamonds. Madame de Pompadour called Madame de Hausset to look at them, she was dazzled, but sceptical, and made a sign to show that she thought them paste. The Count then exhibited a superb ruby, tossing aside contemptuously a cross covered with gems. That is not so contemptible, said Madame du Hausset, hanging it round her neck. The Count begged her to keep the jewel, she refused, and Madame de Pompadour backed her refusal. But Saint-Germain insisted and Madame de Pompadour, thinking that the cross might be worth forty louis, made a sign to Madame de Hausset that she should accept. She did, and the jewel was valued at one thousand five hundred francs, which hardly proves that the other large jewels were genuine, though von Gleichen believed that they were, and thought the Count's cabinet of old masters very valuable. The fingers, the watch, the snuff-box, the shoe-buckles, the garter-studs, the solitaires of the Count, on high days, all burned with diamonds and rubies, which were estimated, one day, at two hundred thousand francs. 
His wealth did not come from cards or swindling. No such charges are ever hinted at. He did not sell elixirs, nor prophecies, nor initiations. His habits do not seem to have been extravagant. One might regard him as a clever eccentric person, the unacknowledged child perhaps of some noble who had put his capital mainly into precious stones. But Louis XV treated him as a serious personage, and probably knew, or thought he knew, the secret of his birth. People held that he was a bastard of a king of Portugal, says Madame du Rosset. Perhaps the most ingenious and plausible theory of the birth of Saint-Germain makes him the natural son, not of a king of Portugal, but of a queen of Spain. The evidence is not evidence, but a series of surmises. Saint-Germain, on this theory, rob his bath up in a mystery, like that of Charles James Fitzjames de la Pluche, out of regard for the character of his royal mamma. I believe this about as much as I believe that a certain reverend Mr. Douglas, an obstreperous covenanting minister, was a descendant of the captive Mary Stuart. However, Saint-Germain is said, like Caspar Hauser, to have murmured of dim memories of his infancy, of diversions on magnificent terraces, and of palaces glowing beneath an azure sky. This is reported by von Gleichen, who knew him very well, but thought him rather a quack. Possibly he meant to convey the idea that he was Moses, and that he had dwelt in the palaces of the Ramesses. The grave of the prophet was never known, and Saint-Germain may have insinuated that he began a new avatar in a cleft of Mount Pisgah. He was capable of it. However, a less wild surmise ever is that, in 1763, the secrets of his birth and the source of his opulence were known in Holland. The authority is the Memoirs of Grossley, 1813. Grossley was an archaeologist of Troy's, he had travelled in Italy and written an account of his travels. He also visited Holland and England, and, later, from a Dutchman, he picked up his information about Saint-Germain. Grossley was a fellow of our Royal Society, and I greatly revere the authority of AFRS. His later years were occupied in the compilation of his memoirs, including an account of what he did and heard in Holland, and he died in 1785. According to Grosley's account of what the Dutchman knew, Saint-Germain was the son of a princess who fled, obviously from Spain, to Bayonne, and of a Portuguese Jew dwelling in Bordeaux. What fairy and fugitive princess can this be, whom not in vain the ardent Hebrew wooed? She was, she must have been, as Grosley saw, the heroine of Victor Hugo's Rui Blas. The unhappy Charles II of Spain, a kind of mammoth, as the English called the Richard II who appeared up in Islay, having escaped from Pomfret Castle, had for his first wife a daughter of Henrietta, the favourite sister of our Charles II. This childless bride, after some ghostly years of matrimony, having been exercised in disgusting circumstances, died in February 1689. In May 1690, a new bride, Marie de Neubourg, was brought to the grisly side of the crowned mammoth of Spain. She, too, failed to prevent the wars of the Spanish succession by giving an heir to the crown of Spain. 
scandalous chronicles aver that marie was chosen as queen of spain for the levity of her character and that the crown was expected as in the pictish monarchy to descend on the female side the father of the prince might be anybody what was needed was simply a son of the queen of spain she had while queen no son as far as is ascertained but she had a favorite a count andanero whom she made minister of finance he was not a born count he was a financier this favorite of the queen of spain that lady did go to live in bayonne in seventeen o six six years after the death of charles the second her husband the hypothesis is then that saint germain was the son of this ex-queen of spain and of the financial court andanero a man not born in the sphere of counts and easily transformed by tradition into a jewish banker of bordeaux the duc de chasseux who disliked the intimacy of louis the fifteenth and of the court with saint germain said that the count was the son of a portuguese jew who deceives the court it is strange that the king is so often allowed to be almost alone with this man though when he goes out he is surrounded by guards as if he feared assassins everywhere this anecdote is from the memoirs of Bleichen, who had seen a great deal of the world he died in eighteen o seven it seems a fair inference that the duc de chasseur knew what the dutch bankers knew the story of the counts being a child of a princess retired to bayonne namely the ex-queen of spain and of a portuguese hebrew financier the chasseur was ready to accept the jewish father but thought that in the matter of the royal mother saint germain deceived the court a queen of spain might have carried off any quantity of the diamonds of brazil the presence of diamonds from her almost idiotic lord must have been among the few comforts of her situation in a court overridden by etiquette the reader of madame d'aulnoy's contemporary account of the court of spain knows what a dreadful dungeon it was again if born at bayonne about seventeen o six the count would naturally seem to be about fifty in seventeen sixty the purity with which he spoke german and his familiarity with german princely courts where i do not remember that barry linden ever met him are easily accounted for if he had a royal german to his mother but alas if he was the son of a hebrew financier portuguese or alsatian as some said he was likely whoever his mother may have been to know german and to be fond of precious stones that oriental taste notoriously abides in the hearts of the chosen people nay never shake your gory locks at me thou canst not say i did it quotes pinto the hero of thackeray's notch on the axe he pronounced it by the way i did it by which i know that pinto was a german says thackeray i make little doubt but that saint germain too was a german whether by the mother's side and of princely blood or quite the reverse grossly mixes saint germain up with a lady as mysterious as himself who also lived in holland on wealth of an unknown source and grossly inclines to think that the count found his way into a french prison where he was treated with extraordinary respect von gleichen on the other hand 
shows the count making love to a daughter of madame lambert and lodging in the house of the mother here von gleichen met the man of mystery and became rather intimate with him von gleichen deemed him very much older than he looked but did not believe in his elixir in any case he was not a card-sharper a swindler a professional medium or a spy he passed many evenings almost alone with louis the fifteenth who where men were concerned liked them to be of good family about ladies he was much less exclusive the count had a grand manner he treated some great personages in a cavalier way as if he were at least their equal on the whole if not really the son of a princess he probably persuaded louis the fifteenth that he did come of that blue blood and the king would have every access to authentic information horace walpole's reasoning for thinking saint germain not a gentleman scarcely seemed convincing the duc de chausseux did not like the fashionable saint germain he thought him a humbug even when the doings of the deathless one were perfectly harmless as far as is known his recipe for health consisted in drinking a horrible mixture called senna tea which was administered to small boys when i was a small boy and in not drinking anything at his meals many people still observe this regimen in the interest it is said of their figures saint germain used to come to the house of the chasseur but one day when von gleichen was present the minister lost his temper with his wife he observed that she took no wine at dinner and told her she had learned that habit of abstinence from saint germain that he might do as he pleased but you madame whose health is precious to me i forbid to imitate the regimen of such a dubious character gleichen who tells the anecdote says that he was present when the chasseur thus lost his temper with his wife the dislike of the chasseur had a mournful effect on the career of saint germain in discussing the strange story of the chevalier d'eon we have seen that louis the fifteenth amused himself by carrying on a secret scheme of fantastic diplomacy through subordinate agents behind the backs and without the knowledge of his responsible ministers the duc de chasseuil as minister of foreign affairs was excluded it seems from all knowledge of these double intrigues and the marechal de belle isle minister of war was obviously kept in the dark as was madame de pompadour now it is stated by von gleichen that the marechal de belle isle from the war office started a new secret diplomacy behind the back of the chasseur at the foreign office the king and madame de pompadour who was not initiated into the general scheme of the king's secret were both acquainted with what the chasseur was not to know namely belle isle's plan for secretly making peace through the mediation or management at all events of holland all this must have been prior to the death of the marechal de belle isle in seventeen sixty one and probably de brolier who managed the regular old secret policy of louis the fifteenth knew nothing about this new clandestine adventure at all events the late duc de brolier says nothing about it in his book the king's secret the story as given by von gleichen goes on to say that saint germain offered to conduct the intrigue at the hague 
as louis the fifteenth certainly allowed that maidenly captain of dragoons deon to manage his hidden policy in london it is not at all improbable that he really entrusted this fresh cabal in holland to saint germain whom he admitted to great intimacy to the hague went saint germain diamonds rubies senati and all and began to diplomatize with the dutch but the regular french minister at the hague d'affry found out what was going on behind his back found it out either because he was sharper than other ambassadors or because a personage so extraordinary as saint germain was certain to be very closely watched or because the dutch did not take to the undying one and told d'affry what he was doing d'affry wrote to de choiseul an immortal but dubious personage he said was treating in the interests of france for peace which it was d'affry's business to do if the thing was to be done at all choiseul replied in a rage by the same courier saint germain he said must be extradited bound hand and foot and sent to the bastille Chasseur thought that he might practice his regimen and drink his senna tea to the advantage of public affairs within those venerable walls. Then the angry minister went to the king, told him what orders he had given, and said that, of course, in a case of this kind it was superfluous to inquire as to the royal pleasure. Louis XV was caught, so was the Maréchal de Belle-Île. They blushed and were silent it must be remembered that this report of a private incident could only come to the narrator von gleichen from the choiseul with whom he professes to have been intimate the king and the marechal de belle-isle would not tell the story of their own discomfiture it is not very likely that the choiseul himself would blab however the anecdote avers that the king and the minister for war thought it best to say nothing and the demand for Saint-Germain's extradition was presented at The Hague. But the Dutch were not fond of giving up political offenders. They let Saint-Germain have a hint. He slipped over to London, and a London paper published a kind of veiled interview with him in June 1760. His name, we read, when announced after his death, will astonish the world more than all the marvels of his life. He has been in England already, 1743 to 17 he is a great unknown nobody can accuse him of anything dishonest or dishonorable when he was here before we were all mad about music and so he enchanted us with his violin but italy knows him as an expert in the plastic arts and germany admires him a master in chemical science in france where he was supposed to possess the secret of the transmutation of metals the police for two years sought and failed to find any normal source of his opulence a lady of forty-five once swallowed a whole bottle of his elixir nobody recognized her for she had become a girl of sixteen without observing the transformation saint germain is said to have remained in london but for a short period horace walpole does not speak of him again which is odd but probably the Count did not again go into society. Our information, mainly from von Gleichen, becomes very misty, a thing of surmises, really worthless. The Count is credited with a great part in the palace conspiracies of St. Petersburg, 
he lived at berlin and under the name of zarogi at the court of the margrave of ansbach thence he went they say to italy and then north to the landgrave charles of hesse who dabbled in alchemy here he is said to have died about seventeen eighty to eighty five leaving his papers to the landgrave but all is very vague after he disappeared from paris in seventeen sixty when next i meet saint-germain he is again at paris again mysteriously rich again he rather disappears than dies he calls himself major fraser and the date is in the last years of louis philippe my authority may be cavilled at it is that of the late ingenious mr van damme who describes major fraser in a book on the characters of the second empire he does not seem to have heard of saint germain whom he does not mention major fraser in spite of his english name was decidedly not english though he spoke the language he was like saint germain one of the best dressed men of the period he lived alone and never alluded to his parentage he was always flush of money though the sources of his income were a mystery to every one the french police vainly sought to detect the origin of saint germain's supplies opening his letters at the post office major fraser's knowledge of every civilized country at every period was marvellous though he had very few books his memory was something prodigious strange to say he used often to hint that his was no mere book knowledge of course it is perfectly ridiculous he remarked with a strange smile but every now and then i feel as if this did not come to me from reading but from personal experience at times i become almost convinced that i lived with nero that i knew dante personally and so forth at the major's death not a letter was found giving a clue to his antecedents and no money was discovered did he die as in the case of saint germain no date is given the author had an idea that the major was an illegitimate son of some exalted person of the period of charles the fourth and ferdinand the seventh of spain the author does not mention saint germain and may never have heard of him if his account of major fraser is not mere romance in that warrior we have the undying friend of louis the fifteenth and madame de pompadour he had drunk at medmenham with jack wilkes as riccio he had sung duets with the fairest of unhappy queens he had extracted from blanche de bechamel the secret of Gobi de mouchy at pinto he told much of his secret history to mr thackeray who says i am rather sorry to lose him after three little bits of roundabout papers did saint germain really die in a palace of prince charles of hesse about seventeen eighty to eighty five did he on the other hand escape from the french prison where grossly thought he saw him during the french revolution was he known to lord lytton about eighteen sixty was he then major fraser is he the mysterious muscovite adviser of the dalai lama who knows he is a will o the wisp of the memoir writers of the eighteenth century whenever you think you have a chance of finding him in good authentic state papers he gives you the slip and if his existence were not vouched for by horace walpole i should incline to deem of him as betsy prig thought of mrs harris
Note. Since the publication of these essays I have learned, through the courtesy of a Polish nobleman, that there was nothing mysterious in the origin and adventures of the Major Fraser mentioned in pages 274 to 276. He was of the Saltoun family and played a part in the civil wars of Spain during the second quarter of the 19th century. Major Fraser was known, in Paris, to the father of my Polish correspondent. End of chapter 12